All right, folks, we're going to delve into John's book here, the the revelation that was given to John. Uh, as I've mentioned the last couple of Wednesday nights, the, the first eight verses uh, here in the book is sort of a preface. It sort of gives us a focus on what's in the rest of the book, and it's, it would be impossible to get it all in that eight verses. We know that the Gospel of John was uh, written about A.D. 65. Uh, John's letters, 1, 2, and 3, were somewhere between 65 and 66 A.D. And then we sort of pinpoint the Revelation somewhere around 94, 96 A.D. The first verse tells us that the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must be shortly uh, must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by the angel to his servant John. We need to understand that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only is Christ the revealer, he is the revealed. He is the author. The word revelation in the Greek is apocalypus which means an uncovering or an unveiling. Uh, Literally, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. His power and glory, we see Him as never before. It is a book of prophecy. Verse 1 shows us that uh, He shows His servant things which must shortly take place. And again, in the Greek, that phrase, shortly take place, is in Tachi, which means something that will happen quickly and it will happen suddenly, but it does not mean that things are going to happen very soon or immediately. It does mean that as the first events start, things will happen in a rapid fire succession. And so not only is the book a book of prophecy, it is also a profitable book. He gives us four ways that the book is profitable. It is profitable for our personal application. He says there in uh, verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of this prophecy. It is also a profitable uh, application for those who hear it, for public assembly. Not only he who reads, but also he who hears what is read. Folks, Scripture should always be a part and a vital part of our worship service because we're, we're there to, to get God's Word. We're blessed by just hearing that Word, and it is very profitable for us to have that Word. Thirdly, it is profitable for practical admonition, uh, profitable for one who hears or hears and keeps what is written. And fourthly, it is profitable in its prophetic anticipation. He says the time is near. It could happen at any moment. And also we live in anticipation. When thinking about the background, we need to realize that these visions that we read about here were probably written at a time when martyrs were being burned. The church was now 66 years old. It had made tremendous growth. It had suffered and was now suffering 
tremendous persecution. To look at a little history, we know that the first imperial persecution of Christians uh, 30 years before this book was written was that of Nero. Nero's uh, reign was from 54 to 68. In that time of persecution, many Christians were crucified. They were thrown to wild beasts. They were wrapped in oil-soaked garments. They were burned to death. We are told that Nero laughed at the pitiful cries of burning men and women. It was in Nero's persecution that both Peter and Paul suffered martyrdom. The second imperial persecution was instituted by Emperor Domitian. That was in A.D. 81 to 96. It was both short and it was extremely severe. Over 40,000 Christians were tortured and killed during that reign. This was the persecution in which John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. We'll find that as we look at further on. We look at verse 9. Uh, John says, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was put there because of his continuous uh, preaching, uh, testifying, uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. He remained there uh, until the end of Domitian's reign. Uh, it appears that he was on Patmos from A.D. 85 to A.D. 86, and he probably wrote the book of Revelation in 96 A.D. And then the third imperial persecution was that of Trajan. It soon began in A.D. 98. John had lived through the first two of these, and he was about to enter the third Roman imperial persecution. It was an effort to blot out all the Christian faith. These were very dark days for the church, and still darker days were to come. And so we need to understand that not only were there persecution outside of the church, but there was also problems beginning within the church. There was corruption and apostasy. It's believed that God gave these visions that we read about here in Revelation evidently to help steady the church for the awful days which he saw was coming ahead. In verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Before we get into that, let me make something to clarify what we're going to be doing here. I've had several people ask how long we thought this was going to take because they have other things in future days. When we did Ephesians, uh, we only had six chapters. I could do a chapter a night. We did it in six weeks. Revelations has 23 chapters. I don't expect we're going to go 23 weeks. Uh, there may be other things that come up on Wednesday night that we need to do that we can't have the study that particular Wednesday night. But I don't have an outline for tonight because a lot of what I'm going to be talking about tonight is is in this first chapter, but is also what led up to and what is a part of the revelation. 
So I don't have the outline of that because if you look at that, some of the stuff that I would say, and it would have to say that was in Robert's brain because that's not written here. So next week I will have the outline and we'll begin from there. And as I begin to look at these chapters, I'll see how we can go about combining them and uh, <clears throat> how many weeks that I anticipate that it's going to take for us to get through. But, you know, thankfully, uh, Brother Andy has come up with the recording. So, you know, if you need to be out or, or you have things that are already planned, uh, then you can keep up with what we're doing if you have to meet, miss uh, weeks or so. I'm going to go through the Scripture as it is there, and sometimes I'm going to digress. There are things that I think that that are relating to this uh, that have other uh, meanings to it. And so as we go through, it won't be just one verse after the next verse after the next verse, but uh, we'll look at it as uh, the Lord leads me to look at it. So in verse 4, we're, we're told that John is sending one letter to seven different churches. Uh, we know that Paul sent seven different letters to seven churches. We have those letters in the New Testament. You can't spend much time reading Scripture without noticing that there is a repetitive reference to numbers, certain numbers in the Scripture. I believe seven is found quite a bit throughout the Bible. The last thing I saw was that 700 times the number seven is used. We know that Jericho fell after seven priests with seven trumpets for seven days, marched around the walls and blew their trumpets seven times on each seventh day, and the walls fell. We know that Naaman dipped in the Jordan seven times. Naaman was a commander. We find his account over in uh, in Second uh, Kings. And, it, and it's very emphatic there that Nathan was a big commander, but there is a but. He had leprosy. And he went to the king who he served, and the king said, I can't do, I don't know what to do. So he referred him to the prophet Elijah. Elijah said, and, and Naaman went to Elijah's house. Elijah did not even come out of the house to greet him. He sent his servant out there. He said, go down to the Jordan and dip seven times and you, your leprosy will be healed. Well, that hurt Naaman's feelings. Number one, he should know who I am. He ought to come out here and tell me that. But he didn't come out there. And so he said, I'm not going. So then this small little servant of Naaman came to him and said, you know, if this guy had told you something very important, very big to do, you would have done it. And now he's told you that you've just got to dip seven times. And Naaman said, well, the Jordan River is very dirty. He could have picked a cleaner river. <laughs> and it is very dirty. And in some places over there, you, you can step across the Jordan River, and some places you can't see the other side of the Jordan River. I know there's a place there where tours bring people to be baptized in the Jordan River. <clears throat> and you stand on this side, and they've got changing stations and everything for people to go down and, and be baptized. Just across about 30 feet, there's a horse stable and a corral over there. And every time it rains, 
it gets cleaned up over there. <laughs> it comes down into the Jordan River. So Naaman wasn't wrong in, in what he was thinking. But he said, you know, I'll go. He went. He was clean. To continue that story, as I digress, Naaman went to Elijah and said, I am thankful for what you've done. And he brought all this good stuff to give to him. And Elijah said, I don't want your stuff. I did it because I knew what you needed done. And so they parted their ways. Well, Naaman's servant heard the conversation. He went to Elijah and said, Naaman's changed his mind. He wants all that stuff. So he took it and left with it. He came back to to uh, Elijah, and Elijah said, "Where you been?" Well, I, I, I just I know where you've been. You got all that stuff, and the result of that will be that you will have the leprosy that Naaman had. <clears throat> so there's a, you know, the seven is in there, but there's a there's a great story in there for us too. There's another uh, number that's that we see in the in the scripture uh, quite often. Uh, but seven seems to be uh, very uh, prolific there. Seven is a favorite number of God's, evidently. There are seven days in a week. There are seven notes in music. There are seven colors in the rainbow. Used as often as it is, it must have a great significance to God for us to find it 700 times in the Scripture. Symbolically, is thought to stand for completeness. It stands for a full unit, for fullness, for totality. The Bible begins with seven days of creation. It ends with a book of sevens about the ultimate destiny of creation. You can find other numbers in the Bible. One other one that I looked at, the number 40. It appears 159 times in Scripture. The number 40 signifies new life, new growth, a transformation or a change from one great task to another. We know the reign of the great flood lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Moses fasted 40 days and nights to prepare himself to receive the law from God. It also signifies a time of testing and trial or probation. Joshua warned Nineveh, that, that in 40 days there was going to be destruction that was going to come. Elijah went 40 days without food and water on Mount Horeb. Jesus was tempted by the devil and others for 40 days as he fasted before he began his ministry. And it appears to the disciples and others 40 days after the resurrection before he was taken up. There's consistency in God's Word. One other thought that I would bring, and that is the concept of the blood in the Scripture. We find it begins in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, when they discovered they were naked, they gathered leaves to make coverings for themselves. And when God came and said, where are you? They were over there hiding. And uh, God replaced the leaves that they had on for clothes with, with the fur of an animal. And there was a blood sacrifice there. Some people wouldn't like me to say that, but God made the first fur coat. (laughs) But there is a blood sacrifice there. The conflict between Cain and Abel had its beginning when Abel offered a blood sacrifice to God. 
and Cain offered an agricultural sacrifice. God did not accept Cain's offering, his sacrifice. There's more evidence to say that it was because of Cain's attitude rather than because it was not a blood sacrifice. The book of Hebrews says that Abel's offering was done in faith. We know that Cain took out his anger on Abel. He eventually killed Abel and buried him in the field. God appears, asks Cain, where is Abel? That famous statement, where is my, am I my brother's keeper? In the fourth chapter of Genesis, God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? And Cain didn't have an answer. God says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the field where you buried him. We find that the crimson stain, crimson thread runs all the way through Scripture from the blood sacrifice in the Old Testament to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus' blood on the cross. Five times in this book of Revelation, there's a reference to the blood. First chapter, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And that thread continues all the way to the 19th chapter in verse 13 where he makes basically the same statement. Getting back to the number seven, there are seven beatitudes or blessings in this book. The first one coming there in verse three, which we've already mentioned, where he says, blessed is he who reads and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. There are, four more, there are six more uh, blessings that we'll look at as we progress through the book. As we continue to, to read there in verse 4, one of the emphasis of the book is the eternity of God's nature. Uh, chapter 4 Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and written, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Glory and honor and thanksgiving to Him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. We find that also repeated in verse 17 and verse 18, where it says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Folks, in a world where empires rise and fall, where all things eventually die and pass away, we're reminded that God is changeless, He is timeless, He is eternal, and we are promised by Him that His nature will be imparted to us and that we, like Him, and by His grace, 
Thank you, Kevin. We'll be unhurt by death. We'll live on and on, alive forevermore, immortal. Think about what a meaning it gives to life and what a comfort it gives to saints who were at that time facing martyrdom. And so what is the source of the book of Revelation? As I said, all of what I want to to begin with tonight is not basically in the Scripture, but what led up to and what is a part of the uh, history of the Revelation. And again, we find that it comes straight from the publishers in heaven. Verses 4 and 5, again. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us, washed us from our sins in His own blood. So the three publishers that He has given to us there in those verses. The first one is God the Father. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He is the eternal God, the Lord over history past, the history present, and the future of our lives. The second publisher is God the Spirit. He's described as the seven spirits who are before His throne. Seven here again represents the fullness of the power and diversity of the Holy Spirit. The prophet Isaiah, in in chapter 11, verse 2, lists seven characteristics that he describes the Spirit as the Spirit of the Lord. He says that it's the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. You find that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The third publisher that he gives us here is God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is also the theme or the focus of the book. Here John gives the Son three titles in this introduction. He says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of earth. So the title Faithful Witness refers to Jesus as the revealer, and the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that uses this title for Jesus. The word witness in the Greek is martyr, and a martyr is someone who witnesses the truth without concern for his life. Jesus Christ witnessed faithfully to the truth, and it cost him his life. No doubt Jesus Christ's life was taken, but his next two titles tell the rest of the story. Even though he was martyred, even though uh, Christ gave his life there, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He was the first to arise from the grave in glorious body, the nearby the, uh, and thereby indicating that others will be able to do the same. Not only did Jesus die and arise from the grave, but he also reigns above all authorities, as his third title denotes. He is the ruler over kings of this earth. As 
as the ruler over the kings of this earth, there is no higher authority than Jesus Christ. We are not waiting for him to come and take control. He's already in control. The problem is that things are now not as they seem. For God is the real power clothed in apparent powerless. And evil is the apparent power which is really powerless. We find no doubt there are several interpretations of the book of Revelation. All of them have their difficulties. No matter which interpretation you want to accept, some of the, re- the requirements to accept some of these uh, interpretations are, require some straining to make them fit. Roughly speaking, there are four kinds of interpretations that have, that have been raised up and, and gathered over the years, each varying greatly within itself. There may be five, but the four most commonly uh, looked at, the first one is the preterist, that's P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. It is from the Latin preter, which means the past. It is an approach to biblical eschatologic that understands all prophecies have already been fulfilled. The Antichrist, the Tribulation, the Millennium, the coming of Christ in judgment was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Preteris regarded the book of Revelation as referring to what has already happened in its own day. And it is Christianity struggling with the Roman Empire back in that time. The second interpretation is the historical interpretation. It contends that the book was designed to forecast a general view of the whole period of church history from John's time on to the end of the world. A sort of panorama, a series of pictures delineating the successive steps and outstanding features of the church's struggle to a final victory. It is a vision of the ages. It's a picture of the great epochs and cries of the church from the beginning up until the end. Then we come to the futurist, which is what we look at. The futurist interpretation uh, centers the book largely around the time of the Lord's coming and the end of the world. They see the book in three sections. That's based on uh, chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus told John, write these things down, the things you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. As we break down the book and begin to look at it, we find that this this first chapter uh, is really where the past is the time of the risen Christ. Chapters 2 through 3 are the letters to the the seven churches, which represents the present. And then chapters 4 through 22, uh, what will take place to the end of time. Finally, the fourth interpretation is that of the spiritualist. 
The spiritualist separates the imagery of the book entirely from any reference to historical events from those of John's day or those at the time of the end of those intervening and deems it to be pictorial representation and highly figurative language of the great principles of government applicable to all times. Make of that what you will. And then there's a fifth one, some will claim, and it's an eclectic interpretation that assumes a little bit of all four. But John tells us there in verse 4 that he is sending letters to the seven churches in Asia. We know them as Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These seven cities which were connected by a great triangular highway are named in their geological uh, order, beginning with Ephesus. Ephesus is about 100 miles north to Pergamum, then about 100 miles southeast to Laodicea, which was about 100 miles east of, of Ephesus. So it's a triangle to connect each of those uh, seven churches, those outstanding ones there. He says through the churches which are in Asia, <clears throat> we need to understand that Asia was a Roman province. In the west part of what we now know, as Asia Minor. That is now part of Turkey. As I uh, related there during the prayer time, I've, I've been looking. Ephesus is way over on the side next to the Mediterranean, and the earthquakes are pretty much in the center. So <clears throat> that is why we don't have very many buildings from early times uh, still standing in the ancient world because of earthquakes. Ephesus is about the only one that has a large building still standing there. It was the chief city. Pergamum was the political capital. We need to understand that there are many churches, or there were many churches in Asia, but these seven churches were representative of the rest of those churches. They've been the main centers in their respective districts and key cities in John's pastoral care of the region. Only Ephesus is seen again elsewhere in the New Testament. Thyatira is mentioned as the home of Lydia in Acts 16. Laodicea had had a letter from Paul, which we know from Colossians chapter 13, but it was lost. We never saw that letter. The other four churches, which are not mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, were probably offshoots from Paul's work in Ephesus. Verse 5 certainly affirms Christ's unconditional supremacy over the world. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, and Him who loved us, washed us from our sins in His own blood. It does not always seem that it is so. Kings and maybe presidents have defied and continue to defy Christ with blatant, brazen boldness. But we know their doom is ultimately certain. You see, the kingdoms which Satan once offered and Christ refused, 
will yet one day belong to Christ in his own way and not Satan's way. We should never forget, even though things look darkest, that that glad day will come soon. And as we said, another emphasis of this book, as we see here elsewhere in the book, the fact that we are saved by the blood of Christ, verse 6 tells us, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Another key note of the book is the fact that the Lord's coming. Uh, It's been over 2,000 years. uh, Has passed. He has not come yet. But we know that he will come with catastrophic suddenness. Jesus first came at the appointed time. And we know that he's on schedule to come at the appointed time again. The book opens with verse 3 that says the time is at hand. It will close in chapter 22 with the same message. In essence, John is saying, I just want you folks to know that the subject of this book is the Lord's return and you better be ready. The message is very simple. Jesus is coming and he is in charge. It's a great blessing to be reminded uh, of those truths in the world as crazy as it is today. Verse 9 through 10, John says, both your, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the Isle of Patmos, which is on the Isle which is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Patmos, uh, the isle in which uh, John was banished in the day of persecution, uh, in the reign of dominion, which these visions were given to him, it's on the Aegean Sea. It's about 60 miles southwest of Ephesus. It's 150 miles east of Athens. The island is 10 miles long. It's six miles wide. It is treeless and very rocky. I had the privilege to go to Patmos. Marianne and I did as we were traveling with the seminary. Uh, As we did, as I did with the seven churches, having the privilege to go to each one of them. Uh, As I said, Ephesus is the only one where there is something remaining there. Laodicea, I had the privilege of preaching there one time with a rock. That is all that's left of Laodicea. We know that John was exiled to Patmos in retribution for his strong Christian testimony. His exile has been described as being much like a death penalty. It was preceded by scourging. He had very little clothes. He had very little food. He slept on the bare ground in a dark prison and worked under the whip of military guards. Ironically, it was here in these dark circumstances that John received the most extensive revelation of future events shown to any writer in the New Testament. He was shut out from the world, but he was shut in to God. He begins by saying, I am your brother and companion in tribulation. 
and patience of Jesus Christ. We know he is writing as instructed to the seven churches, which are representative of all the churches in this area. These churches were made up of fellow Christians, which John identified as fellow sufferers. We know that Paul, uh, in his writings to the Philippians, saying that we are partners in the suffering for the gospel. And it reminds us that whenever we as Christians are called upon to suffer for the sake of the gospel, we find strength and comfort in the fact that we do not suffer alone. But we are one of a great fellowship who in every age and every generation have suffered for Christ rather than deny the faith. He says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We find that in the term, in the Spirit, is used several times in the book of Revelation. The literal translation is, I became in spirit. Now John's normal bodily condition, being limited in time and space, was momentarily set aside as he entered the realm of the Spirit. And in this realm, he moved in two directions. First, he moved upward to see things in heaven, and then he moved forward to view things in the future. The expression on the Lord's day is the subject of considerable controversy among theologians today. Some contend that this expression refers to Sunday, but there does not appear to be any evidence to support this view. The term on the Lord's day is never used in the Bible in reference to Sunday. The common New Testament expression for Sunday is the first day of the week. It is believed that the Lord's day is surely a reference to the day of the Lord, which is that period of time when God deals in judgment and sovereign rule over the earth. So John is saying, I was conveyed forward in the spirit of the day, in the the spirit of the Lord, since this whole book is about the day of the Lord, this interpretation seems most reasonable. We know John saw and heard great and wonderful things. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. Think with me as we think about today and the time that we're in. On the Lord's day, do you hear more than the people? Do you hear more than the preacher? Do you see that the difference between loneliness and worship is I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. You see, John, much like the prophet Isaiah said, Speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. Do we come to our worship service with that emotion? Do we come with that yielded spirit? Do we put away the problems of the week and sit down to worship? Do we tune into heaven? Are you in the Spirit? Or is there static from the world outside? I believe God is inspecting from the balcony of heaven just as he was for John on the Isle of Patmos. Seeing that church at that period, John did not feel alone. The presence of Jesus was real to him, just as real to him as it had been in the upper room, just as real to him as it had been on the road to Emmaus, just as real to him as it had been to Stephen on that day that he was dying, or Paul on the Damascus road that he would just as real, that it would be, I pray that it would just be just as real to us today. We know the Lord Jesus Christ told John to write what you see, write it in a book, 
sent it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And 12 times in the book of Revelation, John is reminded to write it down. Again there in verse 11, he is given even the cities again. He's instructed to write what you see in the book. He says, write to Ephesus, write to Smyrna, write to Pergamon, write to Thyatira, write to Sardis, write to Philadelphia, write to Laodicea. In chapter 14, we'll get to that. Verse 11, he says, Right blessed are the dead who died in Christ from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their work follows them. And in chapter 19, verse 9, he says, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, those are true sayings of God. I know it's time. We find it emphasized again and again in the strongest possible manner that God himself commanded that the book be written and that he himself told John exactly what to write. And so it was very important that this revelation be preserved for the Lord's bondservants to hear, to read, and to heed. Now apparently the first thing that John sees, already we know that he heard a lot, but the first thing that we are aware of that he sees is the golden lampstands and one like the Son of Man. The phrase the Son of Man is used 70 times in the Scripture to describe Jesus Christ. Referring to the incarnation of the Son of God, this speaks of Jesus Christ as the God-man walking on this earth. Have you ever thought about what Jesus looked like when he walked on this earth? Probably the most familiar picture we see is the one printed by Leonardo da Vinci with Jesus with the reddish brown hair and the blue eyes. And many believe that the description that we get in the Song of Solomon uh, presents a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. I'd like to read that. uh, Solomon, uh, the fifth chapter, beginning in the tenth verse. Solomon says, My beloved is white and ruddy, Chief among ten thousand, his head is like the finest gold, his locks are wavy and black as raven, his eyes are like doves, by the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set, the cheeks are like a bed of spices, like banks of scented herbs, his lips are lilies, dripping liquid mirth, his hands are, are, are rods of gold set with burl. His body is carved ivy and laid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. That's two descriptions that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think that neither one of them would measure up to what we read in verses 12 through 18. And I'll read that and then we'll stop. This is the description that that uh, John saw when he looked at Jesus. He said, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, 
one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden hand. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as it refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Quite a bit difference in what we have pictured Jesus Christ as being and what John says that he saw in that particular thing. The only other thing I was going to get into was the lampstands, and we'll save that for next week and uh, look at what he's talking about in the lampstands there. If you want to look, go ahead and look at, at the history of the start of what is there as the lampstands. Exodus 25, verse 31 through 40 describes the lampstands. <clears throat> They're made of gold. I saw one place that said that each one of those lampstands was made of 75 pounds of gold. Another place that you might uh, look and find some uh, some evidence there is in Zephaniah, uh, the fourth chapter. <clears throat> 